Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. If you're visiting with us, um, let me just encourage you. This uh, seeing what we have in here this morning is just uh, proof that we needed to go to two services, like yesterday. So um, there is a second service, believe it or not. So uh, let me just encourage you with this notion. If there's some reason that you have to go to the first service, then by all means keep after it. But if you um, have the freedom of moving between services. Uh, I encourage you to maybe consider coming to the second service and going to the Bible study hour in the first hour. So we're kind of trying to feel our way through this transition, and um, that's just something to consider. Don't, don't feel enslaved to that idea, but if it's six in one, half a dozen in another, then uh, in your case, then um, please help us with that and kind of uh, consider going to that second service next week. Uh, I'm going to pray for another church in our community, and then I'm going to sort of introduce our morning, and then I'm going to have a brief prayer again. So don't be um, discombobulated by that. And then we're going to get into the book of Job this morning. So uh, let me pray. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning. I'm thankful that we have the chance to lift up another church this morning. I want to pray for Travis and uh, for Kayla Chappelle and for Fellowship Bible Church, Lord. We want to lift up this church and lift up this pastor and his wife. Lord, I ask that you would bless Fellowship Bible Church. I'm thankful for the ministry that they've had in Greenville as long as I've been here, as long as we've, uh, as my family has been here for the last 15 years. Lord, I'm uh, thankful for the role that Travis and his wife are playing in this next season in Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we want to lift them up and pray that you would bless them, Lord. Give them great problems of uh, seating issues and parking issues and uh, children's space issues. Lord, I pray that they would uh, have to wrangle with these as we have. Lord, I I pray, too, for Travis as he's preaching each week that you would bless him, that you would fit him, that you would fuel him with worship. Lord, I pray that you would guard him from sort of the rigors and routines of a job and Lord, remind him of a calling and just use that, Lord, to equip the saints. Lord, I am, we are entrusting Fellowship Bible Church to you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I have been uh, in a season of melancholy for the last few years, like years. It's been bizarre, and I, I'm not, I don't know that my whole life has been that way. I don't think I'm characterized by being melancholy, but for a number, I mean, I, I would say probably three or four years now, a season where I've just had this profound sadness, this inexplicable sadness, get up in the morning and feel this sort of overwhelming Sadness, and what even makes it more difficult is not being able to put your finger on why. So I went to bed last night. It was actually night night before last. Christy was gone. She's been out of town this week, and I had a, a chance to just think for a minute before I went to bed. And I thought, man, I'm really happy. I, I wasn't happy because Christy was gone. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll explain that in a minute. I, I was, but I was just like I was going to bed, and, I, and in fact, the last, you know, it's been a season, a recent season, where I get up in the morning too, and I'm like happy when I get up, and it's been really nice. And I went to bed that night, and I was thinking about all the reasons that I have to be happy. You know, kids are are growing up to be, I mean, awesome. We really enjoy them. I mean, we're not one of those sets of those parents that can't wait to be away from our kids. We really enjoy our kids. Uh, we're thankful for the young uh, people that they're growing up to be. Um, Christy and I are, are enjoying what we're seeing in them and enjoying each other. We were apart from each other last week, and I really missed her, and she missed me. So that's good. I mean, those are good things to be happy about. Uh, we were glad. Uh, I was glad that she was home. 
um, we were happy to see each other and happy to be back together. Life is just good, and I was going to bed thinking about that, and then I was thinking along with that thought, life is really good and I'm happy. I was thinking God is really good. Just really this overwhelming sense of God's goodness. But I've been studying Job. I've been studying Job and preparing to teach the youth. And we're coming to a close of that journey with the youth in these next few weeks. And we're coming to the beginning of that journey with our church family as a whole. And immediately my mind went to Job and I thought, will I love him? Will I enjoy him? Will I think him good when things aren't good? Man, I had to wrestle with this question. I didn't like, wasn't overwhelmed by like profound sadness just like that. I just thought though, this sobriety, in that moment of happiness, this sober thought, is my faith sort of a um, mercenary faith? Is my faith in it for the loot? Am I in this thing for when things are good and not just because of who he is? And man, I think that's a wonderful and important question that comes in our journey um, in Job. I think it's going to take wisdom to figure that out. I don't know that I've had a profound revelation on that, but I think in our time in Job, the time that I've spent there and the time that we'll spend in Job, we will come to at least some sense of an answer, some insight into our own faith and some insight into what it means to have pure and whole faith. So we're in the book of Job. This morning, I'm going to spend a few minutes just sort of dealing with some um, just uh, basic information about Job, and then we're going to get into the first five verses um, Job, I mentioned last week, if you were here, I encourage you to, uh, to listen to last week's message. If you, if you weren't here, I think it's an important context sermon uh, for our time in Job. Job is part of a trilogy, a wisdom trilogy, along with the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. In some ways, Job is the battlefield where Proverbs and Ecclesiastes sort of do, do battle, do war, where you try and make sense of how they fit together. Job deals with uh, an ages-old question, why do good people suffer? In my studies preparing for Job, I've also found that there are a number of other writings, extra-biblical writings, trying to answer the same question, like pagan writings, ancient pagan writings, where they're trying to figure out why do good people suffer? And in our case, we could also ask, how could a God who is just and loving allow undeserved suffering? It's a great question. And let me just tell you right up front on this early sermon, this early investment in the journey of Job, there are no eureka moments in the book of Job. <laughs> I mean, I wish that there was like this profound passage that just came, just clearly answered that question of why the undeserving folks, good folks, suffer. But let me just encourage you with this flip side thought. If you get snagged on that, if you're like, oh, well, I'm not going to come back to any of the Job sermons if I don't get an answer to that question. I want you to consider the flip side question is what kind of God is it who's also loving and just who would give undeserved blessing? Now, that's the same God that we're talking about. Now, what I just described, that flip side question is the essence of the gospel itself undeserved blessing. We don't question that God. We just enjoy that God. So my encouragement at this beginning of this journey, or this somewhat the beginning of the journey in Job, is to just enjoy this God. You may not get an answer to that question of undeserved suffering. 
I think we'll probably deal with some bigger questions like what is wisdom and where do we get it and who has it? Those are probably the bigger questions that we deal with in Job. And as I think, as we consider these questions, even the first question, as we try and wrangle with undeserved suffering, I think God is going to do a supernatural work in us and on us as we just submit to his word and just climb into his word and let the word do what it does. We know it's not going to return void. We know that if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it to us. We know that if we seek, we will find. So let's do that together. Let me pray about these next few weeks in Job. Lord, we ask you to open this book to us. Lord, we ask you more than giving us uh, these big, awesome answers to our deep questions, Lord, that you will give us answers to the questions that we should be asking. That in essence, you would give us the questions as well. Lord, I pray that you will make us a wiser people through our investment in this book. Lord, I pray that we will understand ourselves more, that we'll understand you more, that we'll understand faith more. I'm entrusting this people and this season to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Some basic book context stuff. Last week we dealt with, dealt, the whole, whole morning was genre. This morning we're going to deal with some other little tidbits. The kind of things that actually you have access to. You don't have to have a, a, a library full of books uh, to have access to a lot of this preliminary inform information. If you have a good study Bible, the introductory section to each of your books in your Bible should be something that you are like have on speed dial. And I'll tell you right now, if you don't have a good study Bible, the ESV, the English Standard Verse Study Bible, is phenomenal. And it probably does a better job than I'm going to do in the next few minutes. I didn't even read it. I went to some other resources, but I encourage you to read the intro to the book of Job in your English Standard Version study Bible. Dayton author. We don't know who wrote the book of Job. It's an anonymous writing, uh, possibly Moses. Moses has written a, a, a nice portion of our, at least the, he wrote the first few books of the Bible. Moses is a possibility. Maybe Job wrote it. I don't think that's possible, and I'll, I'll mention why later on as, as in the morning. Uh, possibly Solomon, uh, writer of you know, some wisdom literature, a wise guy himself, he would be a good resource, someone we could actually depend on. I think the story predates Solomon uh, significantly time-wise. So my thought, my bet is on Moses, but my bet matters little, and we don't really have to know, and ultimately we don't know, but I'm thinking it's Moses. The context for the story seems to be the time of the patriarchs. And when I say patriarchs, I'm talking about Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob, Esau, that, that time frame seems to be about 2,000 years to 1,500 years before Christ. About a 500-year window, somewhere in that window, seems to be where the story of Job unfolds. They're big families. It's characteristic of the patriarch period. They're long lives. Job lived 140 years. You know, these patriarchs lived like, like over 100 by a lot in some cases. So it seems to be an early writing around the time of the patriarchs. Uh, the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually adds a little paragraph about Job at the end of the book of Job. Now, we don't consider it like something that should be part of our Bible, but it is an interesting resource. It's an ancient little writing that tells us that Job was actually a guy named Jobab, it was the grandson of Esau. 
And you might remember who Esau is, Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. Esau is the red hairy guy, okay, that, that actually was the manly man that actually went out and killed stuff and cooked good game for his dad, okay, that Esau. Now, what's interesting about that connection is this, they, they believe that Uz, this place that it says Job is from, is actually in the land of Edom. And Edom, that word is actually derived from the word red, which is connected to the red hairy guy. If you ever wondered about Edom or the Edomites, those are the people and the offspring of Esau. So we believe that this guy is not of the line in Israel, not of Jacob's line, but of Esau's line. And possibly, as the Septuagint says, the grandson of Esau. Now, it's also interesting during this time period, the patriarchal period, is this period of micro-kings and micro-kingdoms. Now, that's my term. That's not an official term that you could find, but these little micro-kingdoms and micro-kings. If if you've read the book of Genesis, maybe you recall Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham goes to war with all these kings. He goes like Ricky Recon. I mean, high-speed, low-drag, special ops, POW rescue team for his nephew, Lot. And defeats all these kings. There's the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. There's the title king. There's Ketolaomer. All these little micro kings of these micro kingdoms. And that's what's going on here. It seems as if the Septuagint says that Jobab was one of these kings. It also lists his three friends, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz, as kings as well. Little micro kings of micro kingdoms. Again, something else that places it in the period of the patriarchs. The way I sort of envision this whole thing, these micro-kings and micro-kingdoms, if you've ever been to Scotland or Ireland or Germany, you're driving around. We, this was crazy in Ireland. We're driving around Ireland, and you just look on these random hillsides, and you see a castle. You drive a little bit further, there's another castle, castle ruins. There's another castle all over, and they litter all over Europe. And there's this sense of maybe that during that feudal period that um, where there's monarchies and... Uh, feudalism and all that stuff is going on, that maybe they had these little micro-kingdoms. That might be a way to sort of visualize everybody had their own little space and these own little kingdoms. Now, the characters of the the story. Job is obviously a main character. We don't have to work real hard to know that. Job's wife is part of the story. She's not a profound part of the story. She's not mentioned uh, very often. She's only really mentioned once or twice. Uh, She's not mentioned in really a positive light at all. Job has a first crop of children of 10. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. God is one of the characters in the story. Uh, Satan is one of the characters in the story. And specifically, his name means accuser. Now, something that's interesting, he's not the only Satan in the story. There are a number of accusers in the story to include the wife and the three friends. But Satan proper we believe, is playing a significant role in chapters 1 and 2. They're his three friends. And remember, I'm going to use air quotes quotes every time I use these guys. These micro-kings, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, Larry, Curly, and Moe, you could also think of them. But they're not stupid. Okay, They're not stooges. I probably shouldn't even say that because they're actually pretty brilliant. But they're not speaking truth into Job's life. There's a young fellow that thinks he knows everything named Elihu that you meet toward the end of the book. Uh, There will be also at the very end of the book a whole new crop of sons and daughters to include a daughter named Jemima, which means dove. 
there's some youth laughing here because they know where this is going. Another daughter named Keziah, whose name, her name means cinnamon. And another third daughter named Karen Hapuk, whose name means horn of eyeshadow. So these apparently really beautiful daughters, cinnamon, dove, and horn of eyeshadow. And it's kind of cool. The book of Job is sort of like a country music song that plays backwards. By the end of it, he gets all the stuff back. He gets a, you know, his truck back, his grandma comes alive, his dog comes back, all those things. Awesome. So uh, country music played backwards. Okay. Now here's the stru- structure of the book of Job. Okay. I just want to, in case you're reading, and not, I shouldn't say in case, I hope you're reading for this next three months that we have together. I hope you're reading the book of Job. You can totally read ahead. You know, that's, that's not cheating. You can totally read ahead and be prepared. Here's a structure of the book of Job. The first two chapters are the prologue. And our prose, just storyline, okay? Chapter 3 through 31 are dialogues between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, okay? And then after that is really a monologue from the young guy named Elihu, chapters 32 through 37. And then there's another monologue from Yahweh himself, chapter 38 through chapter 42, verse 6. And then there's the epilogue at the very end, which is also prose, just words, not poetry. Uh, Chapter 42, verse 7 through 17. So the middle section of this book is poetry. From chapter 3 through chapter 42, verse 6, is ancient Hebrew poetry. And the very beginning and the very end is prose. Okay? Now, how has Israel and the church treated the book of Job? Okay, we're about to get into the text, and we're not going to spend a ton of time in verses 1 through 5 this morning, but we're going to spend enough time to where we meet and get acquainted with this guy, Job. But I want to take just a moment and consider how has Israel and the church looked at Job over the ages? Well, Ezekiel was the only Old Testament book that mentions Job. Okay, he's the only one that mentions Job, and he says of Job that he's among the most righteous men to that point in history. Ezekiel would have been around 600 years before Christ. Okay, that, that doesn't date Job to 600 years before Christ. It's just where the story is continuing to be told. Okay, and Ezekiel, is, he mentions him as one of the most righteous men to that point in history, along with Noah and Daniel. Okay, that's at least how the ancient Israelites viewed him. Ezekiel gives us a window. Now, James, the New Testament book, James, gives us a view into the early church's view on um, Job. James says in chapter 5 that Job is a picture of steadfastness. Okay, he also says in that context that God has proven, in the story of Job, God has proven compassionate and merciful So we can read that just from the outset as we journey together in the book of Job, knowing that ultimately God proves compassionate and merciful, and Job proves steadfast. And I would imagine that in James's context, he's one of the first, if not the first, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, that Job would be sort of a go-to guy. Being a Christian in ancient ancient Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem was probably a very difficult place to be a Christian. Uh, it'd be like being a, a mouse at a cat farm. Man, you're doomed. You're doomed. And Job would be a go-to guy. Now, over the 2,000 years of church history, 
The story of Job has been told over and over and over again. And here's sort of the big picture bird's eye storyline for the church over the last 2,000 years. Job is presented as a patient, righteous man who is worthy of imitation. A patient, righteous man who is worthy of imitation. And let me just tell you right now, I like doing, finding new things. I like charting new territory. But when it comes to standing on broad shoulders of the church, I want to stand squarely on the church's shoulders. And we're going to be right where the church has been for 2,000 years. And we're going to, the central message for the book of Job is going to be imitating this guy. He's worthy of imitation. Now, the second thing that the church has done for 2,000 years is the church has recognized in Job that he is a prefigure of Christ, a beautiful and wonderful prefigure of Christ. This was crazy in in studying the, the early church. The early church used to read Job during Passion Week. Job is such a beautiful and profound window into the person and work of Christ that they read Job during Passion Week, I think one of my favorite times teaching in my life was a few weeks ago during Passion Week, teaching on a Wednesday night to our youth, the dialogues of all places, the boring, tired dialogues, where in the, in the end, we realize this is a profound view into the person and work of Christ. And here we were on Wednesday night of Passion Week, doing what the church did 2,000 years ago, enjoying Christ through Job. Man, it's a book about imitating a guy that's worthy of imitation, and it's a book about a window into the person and work of Christ. Okay, now let's get into the text. The plan for the next few minutes is I'm going to spend a few minutes unpacking verses 1 through 3. I'm going to spend the majority of our time there, and then just a few minutes on verses 4 and 5. And then I have four applications for us. Each week, we're going to try and figure out how can we walk in what we're exposing? How can we apply what we're exposing? So I have four applications for us, okay? So let's get into our passage. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. It reads almost like a fable. We used to read a book to the kids on a dark and stormy night on Elm Street. I don't remember what the name of the street was. But it kind of begins that way. This, there was a man from the land of Uz. And the reason it sort of reads that way is because it's a departure from the storyline of Israel. It's a departure from the storyline of Israel because we're talking about an Edomite, a guy that's not of the main line, who's not part of Israel's storyline. So it sounds like a fable. We're sort of parachuting into this guy's life. He lived in the land of Uz, likely, as I mentioned earlier, in the land of Edom connected to the red hairy guy, Esau. Job is described as three things in this passage that are profound. The first is blameless. The second is upright. And the third is that he feared the Lord. I want to consider those three things just for a moment. Blameless. In my mind, I have a vision of a picture of blamelessness. Uh, Some real just stupid illustrations. One is uh, from a movie that I saw years ago. I love me a good sports movie. I mean... Really, Rudy is one of my favorites. 
Some of you have watched Rudy back in, I think it was 1990, something like that. The story of a guy that wanted to play football for Notre Dame, but he didn't have the money, he didn't have the grades, he didn't have the physical ability, but this guy was all in. He hired a tutor. Apparently, he was dyslexic and had to have a tutor to help him with his schoolwork just so he could get the grades, just so he could pass the test. And I don't know where the money came from. I can't remember the rest of the story. But this guy was focused. He was driven. He was all in wanting to play football for Notre Dame. It seemed like at the end of the movie, he actually got to play a, a, a play or two. It's a great story. I also think about a guy named Jim Elliott a martyred missionary that once said, if you're going to be somewhere, be all there. Man, I love that phrase. That's one that became dear to me when we first moved to Greenville. Greenville, Texas, man, everybody, we didn't have no, we had no familiarity, no exposure with Greenville. We didn't even know where Greenville was. And we moved to Greenville, and one of the things that Christy and I reminded each other of often is if we're going to be here, let's be all here. Okay, those are visuals of this term blamelessness that means being all in. But the term when it comes to God is being all in with God. The word in its strictest sense means complete and perfect. Not perfect as in sinless, but perfect as in whole. Complete, then you can understand why we're talking wholeheartedness, being all in. The blameless worshiper is sold out for God. Man, they're not double-minded. They're not half-minded. They're not half-in. They are all in. Something else that the word means, here's another place where it's used. And just listen to this. This is so beautiful. And this is going to come full circle over the course of our time in Job. Listen to this in the book of Exodus. Your lamb shall be without blemish, blameless. That's what that word means. The same word. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It's also used in the book of Leviticus. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, blameless. We're not talking about a guy who's sinless. We're talking about a guy that is a suitable offering. And this is where I hint, hint, and wink, wink at where the book of Job is going. If this is a prefigure of Christ, he better be a suitable offering because he's going to be offered up over the course of the book and God only offers good things. He's blameless. He's upright. The word actually means virtuous and straight. Upright kings were commended for doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord in contrast to the period before the kings. You may remember how the book of Judges ends it ends with the phrase that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Okay, that's the opposite of what is upright. Upright is doing what is right in God's eyes. Now, here's what's really cool. Those two words, blameless and upright, are used often together or at least in the same vicinity in the book of Proverbs, developing the concept and the picture of someone who is morally sound, a son who is morally sound. This is the son who heeds the commands of his father and gains wisdom. And this son is going to be marked by rightness, i.e. righteousness, and obedience. This is Job, blameless and upright. Job also feared the Lord and turned away from evil. 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fear in Proverbs and in Job are not horror. They're not running from God because you're afraid of God. The word actually is better understood as to mean awe. This man was in awe of God. He did not view himself as the center of creation. He viewed his whole life and all that he was and all that he did with God being the center of all of it. He listened to him and he obeyed him. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is a profound setup. Whoever wrote the book of Job is totally setting us up at this point. Let me, let me illustrate it for you. Uh, I remember growing up seeing the big billboards for the Marlboro Man. Okay, apparently there were a number of Marlboro Men because they, they died. Like four of them died from lung disease or lung cancer or emphysema. No joke, for real. Like these guys died. I mean, but man, they were the picture of Marlboro. I mean, I wasn't a smoker. My, my family didn't smoke, but I remember seeing the, the, the picture and think, man, if I were going to smoke, I'd want to look like that guy. He's the picture of manliness, right? He, you see the Marlboro man and you would think Marlboro. Well, Job is the poster guy. He's the, the billboard guy for Proverbs. He's the Proverbs man, okay, in, in so many ways. If Proverbs were a movie, Job would be the star. If Proverbs were a song, Job would be the chorus. If Proverbs were a product, Job would be the jingle and he would be the logo. And if Job is indeed the Proverbs man, then he's going to be blessed, Right? I mean, has anybody else ever read the book of Proverbs? Let me just read a few excerpts for you. If Job, okay, if Job were, were, were going to be, if, if the book of Proverbs is going to be illustrated, it's going to be in this guy named Job. Okay, and he's going to be blessed according to the book of Proverbs. Here's a few little excerpts from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You, you can almost see a little, little note at the end of that. See Job. Man, this guy's blessed. He's honoring the Lord with all of it. And he's, he is the poster boy for Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who's arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Okay, that's the flip side, the anti-Job. If you don't move like Job and you move the opposite of Job, it's not going to go well with you, according to Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 6. A fool's lip, lips walks into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Okay, that's not Job. Job is the wise son that's not the fool. Proverbs 21, 7, the violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is right. There's some promises almost in Job. If you do what's right before the Lord, if you live in awe and fear of him, blameless and upright, you're going to be blessed according to the book of Proverbs. And if you don't, you're inviting a beating, <laughs> metaphorically and literally, right? This guy is the Proverbs man, and this is a significant Set up. If we didn't have the rest of the book of Proverbs and that's all we had and we had to extrapolate, extrapolate is a word that you use when you only have a certain amount of data, but you have to try and come up with an answer based on the data that you have. 
If we had to extrapolate for the rest of Job's life based on what we've seen so far, and all we had was, was Proverbs, we'd be like, man, it's going to go well for this guy. He's going to live a long, happy, awesome life. Man, we see it so clearly developed elsewhere in our Bible. It's not just Proverbs. We have the sense that it's going to go well with Job, that he's going to be blessed. And guess what? He really is. We have to start in the right place in the book of Job. We can't make a beeline to the rest of the story. Let's start in the right place and realize this guy is moving well, and he is super blessed. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Now, some numbers mean some things in the Bible. I'm not a numerology kind of guy, and that stuff can get really sort of weird. But the number seven, pretty traditionally in the book of the Bible, or in any book of the Bible, means sort of this wholeness, this completeness. To have seven sons, this man, you got a nice full quiver of laddies that are going to carry on your name. That's a great thing. And then to have three daughters on top of that, a total of 10? Man, this guy is driving a white panel van. You know, the ones without the windows because it's got to carry more kids. He's got a full family of 10 kids. It's white, too. Is that, trust me, it's a white van. He's got 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, good round numbers too, man. A full house and a full herd. He's got 500 oxen and 500 donkeys. He's got 1,000 working animals. This guy is really blessed. He's blameless and upright and fears the Lord, and he's blessed. He's living the good life. Instead of the American dream, it's the Edomite dream. He's living it, man. God is blessing him. He is the Proverbs man. You can see him on the billboard right now. His, his, his family behind him, his white panel van in the background, all the, the critters in the other side. Man, this guy is living it. So much so that the passage says that he's the greatest of all the people of the East. That's why I think Job didn't write the book. That'd be kind of weird. And I'm the greatest of all the people of the East, wouldn't it? It's a side note. In the passage, whoever wrote the book, the narrator says that this guy is the greatest of all the people. That word means sons, actually. Translated sons of the East. He is literally the good son of Proverbs. And here's something that's going to be hard for a bunch of uber-reformed people. Let me coach you on this. He's actually a good man. A room full of Reformed folks that had worked through a lot of the New Testament with Crosspoint Fellowship are saying, man, this guy's a wicked, vile sinner just like I am. All of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. Man, I know this guy's a wicked, vile sinner. He's no one's righteous, no, not one. I have a tough time considering this guy is a good guy. Let Job be Job. This guy actually is a good guy. The crazy thing about the book of Job is there actually is a good guy and some really bad guys and a bad gal in the book. So we don't want to superimpose other passages on top of this unnecessarily. Let Job be Job and speak for itself. This guy's winning. Job is winning. He's among the short list of folks in our Bibles who with Noah and David were counted blameless. He's a suitable sacrifice, isn't he? Hint, hint. Wink, wink. Let's look at the last two verses that we'll consider this morning briefly. And here's some proof of this guy's virtue. 
Chapters 4 and 5, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job's sons celebrated feasts, apparently, on their birthdays, their own special day. Consider that's probably their birthdays. And they invited everyone else, and they all had a great time. They even invited their sisters, and they had a great time feasting. And so Job, being in awe of God, remember, God is the center of his world, was more concerned about not what he thought about his children, but what God thought of his children, And is so mindful of that that he's offering up continually, it says, burnt offerings on behalf of his children just in case they cursed God. What's really cool about that little glimpse is this greatest son of the East was also a great father. Man, he's putting his kids right before the father, the father, the heavenly father in the throne room. He's moving like a great father. And unlike the characters in the story that are moving as accusers, This guy is moving as a mediator, an intercessor. Now, the church for a couple thousand years, as I mentioned, has presented Job as a model. And we're not going to depart from that. There's no reason to. We don't need anything new. I like ancient stuff. I like ancient true stuff. So we're going to consider just these four little brief points that just come out of this passage that are just here for the taking. We can join the ancient church and the church for 2,000 years as we get to know this ancient worshiper and hoping that we too, like Job, can move in a way that's blameless. I pray for that in us. I pray that we can respond in a way, Lord, make us blameless. Make us single-minded in our pursuit of you. That's what we're called to be, is blameless. Single-minded in our pursuit of God. Wholehearted when it comes to God, which frankly is the opposite of loving him just enough to not go to hell, right? Man, anybody else ever guilty of thinking that way? (laughs) Lord, deliver us from that. Show us what it means to love you blamelessly, not as mercenaries, but as true worshipers. Secondly, I pray that we can fear God like Job feared God, seeing him as the center of his world. Man, I love the fact that we teach our kids as little, little bitty kids, who made you? And they say, well, God made me. Well, what else did God do? Well, God made all things. Well, what else did he do, lad or lassie? Well, why did he do those things? He made me for his own glory. Parents, if you're teaching your children that they're special little snowflakes... Man, you're setting them up for failure. I mean, in life, much less faith. In life. Man, teach them that something else is the center of their universe. We should know that. The center of our universe is what it means to fear God. Is God is the center of our universe. His purposes prevail. His purposes are what matters most. Third, I think it's fair to want to be the Proverbs poster boy and poster girl. There's nothing wrong with that. That wasn't set up as something that's sort of foolish. That is, in fact, very wise to want to be the wise son or wise daughter 
following what a good father has told us to do and be? Why wouldn't we want to walk in wisdom? And why then shouldn't we expect resultant blessings? It's fair. The book of Proverbs is true. It's not all the story, but it's true. There's nothing wrong with moving well and expecting good blessings. But don't make an idol of those expectations either because God might be working something that's more important than your blessings. Fourth, we should be mediating and interceding for others. We can follow this good father's example and as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as friends, as youth, as children, as worshipers in Hunt County, we can be mediating for Hunt County. How about that? We can be mediating for those that we work with, those that we live with, those that we do school with, those that we do life with, those that we play soccer with, those that we do DI with, those that we do robotics, all that stuff. We can be mediating for them and begging for, Lord, if they've cursed you in their heart, please show me how to move in their life and show them the perfect sacrifice in the person and work of Christ. Man, what a great burden. What a great model. Might we be this in Greenville? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would grow and give us these things. Grow these things in us and give us these things. Deliver us from mercenary faith and give us a steady and deep satisfaction in knowing and walking with you. I pray that you'll bless this journey that we're taking together in the book of Job. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute our elements for the supper, and I want to ask this of you in these next few minutes. If you're not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, pass on this little supper. It's not going to be enough for your lunch. It's a wee little piece of bread, a wee little cup. It won't satisfy you at all. It'll probably just make you aggravated because you're going to want some real food. But for the rest of us, for those who are trusting Christ as Savior and Lord, this is a very important faith moment that we take, faith step that we take every single week. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to take and eat and drink. Let's distribute the elements.